Okay, guys, I got four things for you today. I want us to think uh, for a minute about text and event. That'll mean more to you in just a moment. I also want to take a look at chapter 23, verse 12, and answer the question of why Luke felt the need to tell us about Pilate and Herod becoming pals again. Third, I just want to reemphasize Jesus' point of the great reversal. And then fourth, why the severity of the suffering of Christ? Why is it so hard? I got that question numerous times yesterday after the service. Uh, but let's start with that first one, text and event. This is especially for you community group leaders, you preachers, teachers, you personal Bible studiers. When we ask the question, what was it like for so-and-so in the events of Scripture? What was it like for Pilate? What was he thinking? What was it like for those people in the crowds? Those are fine questions to ask. Sometimes I ask them in the pulpit. I think they're, again, they're fine. They help us kind of begin to sense and not just know, but sense what's going on in the events of the Bible. But what we have to do, though, when we're teaching the Bible, when we're understanding the Bible, is we have to make sure and emphasize what the text wants us to take away from the events. In other words, we need the text to tell us what the events mean. And so therefore, if you spend too much time in the events of Scripture, just trying to wonder what it was like for them, what were they thinking, those kinds of things, and you don't drive home the point of what the meaning was, then you miss the whole point of the text. There's a danger there to get so much in the experiences, the events of the text, we miss the point of the text, why it's there. I'll give you an example of this. Some of you have heard me use this. It's such a good example. Imagine a father and a son walking through the parted Red Sea. All right? Imagine they're walking through the parted Red Sea and the son asks the father, Dad, what does all of this mean? And then the father says back to the son, I don't know, son. We have to wait for the book. (laughs) In other words, what that little uh, parable teaches us is that we can get into the events of Scripture, uh, but ultimately, in order to drive home the point, we have to know what the text tells us the events mean. If we don't do that work, we're not preaching well, we're not teaching well, we're not studying well. So get into the events, ask those questions, but ultimately drive people back to the point of the passage. That's what we need to hear the most, because it's the words of God that tell us what the events of God mean. All right? So when you're studying, when you're teaching, make sure, yes, ask questions of the event, but drive home the point of the passage, the author's intention. Otherwise, you've not done the work of why that passage was even written down. All right? Second thing we want to talk about is this question of Pilate and Herod. Why is this here in the passage? That's in 23.12. Why is that there? So you remember the occasion for this event is after uh, Pilate has sent Jesus away. He found out he was from the region of Galilee and Herod happens to be in town and uh, Herod is uh, now going to question Jesus. And it's after Herod questions him. We get that in chapter 23, verse 12, uh, namely that it says there, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day for before this they had... Uh, been at enmity with each other. Uh, And so, why is that there? Why would Luke feel the need to insert that? Well, let me first answer a question about Herod really quickly that came up at my lunchtime table with my kids. I mentioned in the sermon that this Herod here in the passage was the same Herod that put John the baptizer to death. 
uh, one of my sons asked me, is this the same Herod that was alive and reigning at the time of Christ when he commanded, when, at the time of the birth of Christ, when uh, he commanded all the babies to be killed? And the answer to that is no. This Herod in chapter 23, verse 12, is the son of that Herod uh, when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was reigning in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth, but his son, Herod Antipas, uh, is actually this guy. This is the guy that puts uh, John the Baptist to dead. This is the guy that's questioning Christ. Different people. But why is this passage here? Why did Luke feel the need to put this in here? Uh, I'm not real sure. <laughs> Scholars don't seem to be exactly sure either. Uh, but here's my best guess at this. I believe that what Luke means to teach us uh, in chapter 23, verse 12, is to show us how forces of darkness can unite together in order to overcome or attempt to overcome Jesus. Uh, I think Luke, what he's trying to teach Theophilus, what he's trying to teach we lovers of God, is that when people are aligned against Jesus, then they will find necessary means to unite themselves together, even if they are at enmity with each other. Um, And so we have to recall, right, Pilate is a Roman governor. And Herod is a Jewish sort of governor over Galilee. So they had all kinds of reasons to be opposed to one another. And I think, again, Luke puts this in here. This is my guess. So as to teach us uh, that the forces of darkness will often align together if it means attempting to take down the kingdom of God. And I think he means to teach us that we need to be aware of that. That just because two things in the world are opposed to one another, they might come together to take the kingdom of God, try to take the kingdom of God down. They can't, ultimately. But I think that's what that means. I don't know why else he would have stuck that in there when you have all of these forces aligning itself together in the last hours of Jesus. Uh, It seems to be emphasizing this need of, or this teaching of the world coming together to put Jesus down. And so those of us in Christ need to stand against the world and uh, be united to each other as the world unites itself to itself to try and take us down. That's the second thing. Uh, The third thing that I want to mention, I just want to reiterate reiterate this, but um, I said this in the passage, but again, I want you to take a look at um, what we see there in chapter 22. I probably should have gone this before this one, but chapter 22, when Jesus is meeting with uh, the Jewish council, So we see there, remember this is when the chief priests and the scribes came together and they asked him if he was the Christ. And Jesus says in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us, sorry, but he said to them, Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe and I ask you and you will not answer. That's that whole, I'm not going to throw pearls to swine. I know you're not actually interested in the truth. And then he says this in verse 69, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then they go on to say, are you the son of God? And he says, you said so. Again, it's so important. Jesus is likely standing there. We're talking about an event, but nevertheless, uh, the text means to teach us that in the mind of Jesus, in that event uh, of Jesus standing in front of that council, Jesus means to teach us and teach them that they are the ones that seem to have all the power. Uh, however, it's him that is actually going to have the true and forever power. He's going to be the one that's seated. He's going to to be the one that's seated at the right hand of God that has all the power and not those 
uh, great Jewish leaders. They have temporal power, they fail. And that's what flips the switch for those uh, Jewish leaders. So it's good for us to be reminded that in the appearances of things, we Christians may look weak and defeated, and we may look like we're on the backside of the wrong side of history, and yet insofar as we're faithful to Christ and his kingdom, uh, we will be found in Christ to be seated at the right hand of the power of the majesty on high. Good to be reminded of such things. As I said in the sermon, we, we look not on the outward appearance of things, but we look on the heart. That's what the Lord does. After the service yesterday, I was asked this question numerous times. Why the severity of the suffering of Christ? And my answer to them was this. is So as to illustrate for us the sinfulness of sin or the severity of sin. Right? The Bible teaches a eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, uh, there needs to be justice in the world. People need to receive the penalty for which they are uh, due. The crime needs to fit or the punishment needs to fit the crime. And that's what we're seeing in the severity of the suffering of Christ. Our crime, our punishment is that bad that it demands such severe suffering in the person and the work of Christ. Um, we oftentimes don't think of this uh, in terms of our sinfulness as being that bad. That's part of the problem. Right? We, we don't, many lost people don't feel their need for God because they think they're pretty good. They think the average person is pretty good. And so this call to repent of sin and to trust Christ, otherwise you go to hell, it seems too severe. The justice seems to be inact. doesn't seem to be uh, good there. It seems to be a uh, uh, injustice. The penalty seems to be too severe. But what we see in the sufferings of Christ is what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that our sin demands a suffering and a penalty like that. Uh, a good example of this is if I were to jump through the backyard of uh, someone's house over here in AU Park, I might get slapped on the wrist. But if I were to do the exact same thing at the White House, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the penalty for my jumping through their backyard would be such that I might lose my life. Well, what's the difference between the person in the AU Park and at the White House? Well, the difference is, is the one of whom I offended. So in the same way, our sinfulness towards God is uh, illustrating for us the severity of our sin. And as Jesus enters into that freely, what he is doing is he is picturing the sinfulness of our sin, but he is capturing justice beautifully, right? We see this Jesus who freely and willfully enters into this suffering, yes, to illustrate the sinfulness of our sin, but all the more to illustrate the love of God, that he would go to these lengths to bring us home, that we might stand before him blameless and adopt his, as adopted son and daughters at his table. Uh, and so, beloved, as you think about this, as we look at the cross this coming week, Lord willing, let the severity of suffering remind you of the sinfulness of your sin, but all the more may it remind you of the greatness of the love of God that satisfied justice so that you might be with him forever. Enjoy this week.